welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Occasionally in the flow of church gatherings, we find ourselves uh, at the end of a specific series and maybe a couple of weeks before we start a a new one. And on these occasions, it allows us to do something a little bit different, just to to dip into other parts uh, that we don't regularly touch upon. And a few months ago, when we had had a bit of a break uh, in in the series, I spoke on the first chapter of Haggai. And this this week and next week, we're going to dip back into Haggai so that we just get some gleanings from what this guy is trying to say to the people of Israel. We're going to try and unpack what is in some ways a quite simple and straightforward book, but with a very challenging message to us all. So we're going to look tonight, uh, this morning I should say, at verses 12 to 15, but I just want to take a few moments to recap where we, where we left off from a couple of months ago. Approximately 200 years prior to Haggai writing this book, the 12 tribes of Israel had split into two nations. They had Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Do we we have it? Oh, there we have it. They they split. There had been wars and arguments and disagreements. And the two tribes in the south were Judah and the 10 tribes to the north were Israel. This was about 200 years before this book is written. And the northern kingdom was then later attacked by the Assyrians, and they were taken into captivity, and they were taken into exile, and they have never come back. They were taken into exile and dispersed then throughout the then known world, and they have never returned. The southern kingdom was attacked again, a few years later, and they were taken into captivity in Babylon. They were taken to Babylon. Seventy years after they had gone into exile, a man became king, whose name is probably going to be quite familiar to us, and it was that of King Cyrus, and he had incredible power. He conquered Babylon, which was then the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, and he conquered that, and he was an incredibly different man in every sense. When he became king, he decided to send back all the nations that he had taken captive, to send the people back to their nations so that they could develop and revitalize their cultures. This had never been heard of before. It had never been heard of since. He conquered the known world, and yet he says, you can go back to your country and you can reignite your culture. And so, He sent them back home, and he sent the Israelites as well. They were allowed to go back. And he made a decree, and the decree went like this. I want everyone to go back to your home country. I want all those who were brought into captivity to be released and have the freedom to pursue their own religions and their own culture. Unheard of. Just an incredible situation that was created by God. So therefore, some of the Israelites started to return from exile. And so we are talking around 538 BC. At this time, the Bronze Age was coming to an end in Northern Europe. Buddha was alive. Confucius was alive. And incredible time in the history of the world. And so they start to come back. And then we're introduced to this man called Haggai. And his story is this. The children of Israel had started to drift back 
And they had now been back in Jerusalem for 18 years, and they were given the job of rebuilding the temple. That was the purpose for they came back. And now 18 years after they had come back, they had stopped. They had, for some reason, decided that they weren't going to do it anymore. They had stopped. Maybe they had been discouraged. Maybe they had just got opposition, but whatever the purpose was, whatever the reason was, they were not fulfilling their purposes. So God raises up Haggai to challenge them. And we read in verses one and two, it says this, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They were sent back to rebuild the temple, and now they were saying it was not the right time. As we enter the last few weeks of winter, hopefully, ironically, it was in the autumn and in the winter, two and a half thousand years ago, in late August, when Haggai stood up to challenge the people of Israel. They say it was actually that August the 29th, we can work out exactly when it was, August the 29th, two and a half thousand years ago, that God speaks to the returning people and he says, I want you to build again. I want you to do what I have sent you to do. And he challenges them. And we see in these next two to three chapters their response. See, the people to whom Haggai was speaking, the temple was the pinnacle of their religion. That is what, it was the pinnacle of their faith. They were sent back to rebuild this thing that was incredibly precious to them. But you know, we, we now are the temples of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are now living temples, the, the New Testament tells us. So whenever you read temple in the book of Haggai, you should, you should insert the the. Uh, you should, sorry, you should insert the kingdom of God or the purposes of God. I was, I was starting to walk down here and I saw this in front of my eye and it, took, it distracted me. Instead of reading temple, you should see kingdom of God or purposes of God. We are a people to whom God calls to fulfill his kingdom on earth. Let me get back to my notes. There are four things that we saw last time that were excuses or possible reasons why they had stopped building the temple. First of all, there are always other reasons for not doing what God has for us. You know, we live in a busy life, we live in a busy world, and there are always other things that will come and take our time. That was one possibility. A second possibility here for the people of Haggai, uh, for, the, for the people of Israel, was that comfort always crushes obedience. These people have been back 18 years, and I would reckon that they had got very comfortable. And we always find ourselves in life that when we get comfortable, it is a real challenge to our obedience. Thirdly, when God isn't first in our lives, we will always be dissatisfied. And then we saw that response requires effort. And so this morning, I want us to turn to verses 12 to 15 and see how the people respond. I want to read the verses to you. It says here in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord, 
Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltia, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Josiah, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, of, of the of Lord of hosts their God, on the twelfth, on the twentieth-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So we start this. Thanks, John. So we start these three verses with an invitation from God to the people of Judah. He says, come, make a, dif- make a difference. Be my people. Start to see my purposes fulfilled in your generation. Come and start something that God has already planned for you. And between verses 11 and verses 12, there is a gap in time. So basically, they were challenged, and then there's a gap, and verse 12 picks it up. They have been sent away by the prophet to think, will they really respond to what God wants them to do? to do? Will they really be obedient in all that he has for them? And so we pick it up here in verse 12, and we see that they respond, and they respond in a positive way. The first thing I want just to unpack very briefly is that response is not just hearing God's word, but obeying it. I know it's Christianity 101, but in verse 12, we read that Zerubbabel and the people say yes to God. They didn't just be hearers of the word, they just did not read it or listen to it, they actually did something about it. Incredibly basic, but it's so, so true. John, when he talks about abiding in him, he says, abiding is not simply knowing, but it's hearing and listening and doing. James, in his epistle, says these words, do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he is like. When we think of a mirror, we just think of something that's really clear and simple and it's plain and we can see ourselves. When James is talking about a mirror, they didn't have mirrors like we have today. When they talked about mirrors, they had a, it was like a brass or even a metal and you couldn't really see yourself in it, but they had to polish it and they really had to shine it. But then still the reflection was not very clear. And when James writes that word, look in a mirror, he is asking you to Bend down and get really in the face of this thing and allow it to reflect back what is there. To look in the mirror was a really difficult thing to do when Paul is there because it wasn't that easy to do. But he is saying you've really, really got to look in the mirror to see what your reflection is like. And you know, we have really, friends, got to take our time and look what the Word of God says to us in our situations. You know, a mirror, I don't particularly like mirrors. <laughs> when, um, you know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of mirrors, but you can understand why. But, um, but you know, he's not saying have a quick glance. It's not just, this is not a 21st century verse. This is a first century where you've got to look in it and really get hold of it and see what it says. It means that you have to look carefully and look intensely. Zerubbabel and Joshua obeyed the word of the Lord 
And I believe that, again, as we go into this next season of, of church and of our lives, that the call to us is, do we really, really do what God wants us to do? Are we really, really responding? You know, my kids, bless them, I, they would sometimes say, oh, yes, Dad, yes, oh, we, we'll do what you tell. We'll do what you ask us to do. And there's sometimes you have to say to your kids, don't just say the words, show me that you obey. I don't know if you've ever had that problem with your kids, but it's just like, kids, don't just say you're going to do it, do things. And sometimes I believe that God wants us to be people that really respond in every sense. You know, we have a lovely picture in Ezekiel and Revelation, in both passages, they see a vision of an angel, one with a foot in the water and the other on the land, signifying the power of God over creation. The angel is preaching, and Ezekiel and John both take out a scroll, and they both go to take notes. And the angel says, don't take notes. He says, but eat the scroll. Let it become part of you, and it will be sweet in your mouth, and it will be sour in your stomach. You know, consider this. I don't know about you, but whenever I eat food, it breaks down the carbohydrates, the sugars, and the proteins, and the elemental part of the food chain becomes part of who I am. As you can see, I have never had a burger in my life. I've never eaten too much. I've obviously the slim great body that I have, but it breaks down so that my body can function properly. It is only as I metabolize what I eat does it become any good to me. It's, otherwise, it is completely worthless. The only power that the Word of God has for us, if we break it down, if we eat it, and if we digest it, and we live it out. When it becomes part of us, when it becomes who we are, then does it start to have effect. As we digest food, as we break it down, it gets into our digestive system, so it allows us to move our fingers, our eyes, allows us to, to smell, it allows us to taste. It's the same with the Word of God. As we break it down and as it works in us, we begin metaphorically to hear what God would hear. It allows us to see what God would see. It allows us to smell what God would smell. It allows us to think what God would think. It is only as we metabolize, as we break down, as the Word of God becomes part of who we are, does it really have any effect. We... we we need to digest it. We need to allow it to shape every one of us. You know, I may have said this, this before, but I'm just going through a season of when I, whenever I'm in, at home on my own or whether I'm in the office, and I just play the Bible on my iPad. You know, I, I just felt God just speak to me oh, about two or three months ago. I hear so many different things. You know, all around us, we hear so much noise. We hear so much volume. We hear so much word. So many words. And I just felt God say to me, I needed to spend time just allow the power of the spoken word of God to flow over me and through me and into every part of my life and every part of my being. You know, I don't know what I ate six weeks ago, but I know that I enjoyed it. I don't know what I read in the, my Bible six weeks ago, but I do know that it does me good. And friends, we are called to be people who respond to his word in our life. Secondly, it is leaders that set the tone for responding. It's important to note that Joshua, 
and Zerubbabel responded, and the people followed. It says here, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. A couple of things to see here. What makes the difference wasn't that Haggai was a good preacher, and I'm sure that he was, but that he spoke the word of the Lord and the people heard it. The people heard the word of the Lord. It didn't, they didn't say, oh gosh, that guy's preaching again. Oh, that guy's just going on again. He's just got another word from the Lord and he's just telling us all these things. They heard the message of the Lord through the words of Haggai. You know, friends, we hear great teaching week in, week out, and we are the most blessed of people. But unless we respond to it, unless we hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us, it will not be as successful as we would want it to be. You know, one of the things I really don't like doing, and I don't do it anymore, I never like preaching or speaking to pastors and fellow leaders. I don't know if you like it. I find it really, really hard. You, you, probably really good at it. But whenever I, I speak to pastors, <clears throat> I always think that they're sitting there, well, go on then, son, impress me. And, and I just think that that's the f- thing that I get, well, come on then, impress me. And sometimes you can get that from pastors, can't you? There's this sense of, oh, well, what have you got to say? Let's hear. And I, and I find it really, really hard. Show us what you can do. And I have to guard my heart against that. Friends, you know, we, as a group of people, are incredibly well fed. We've got to allow it to get down into our system. Leaders set the tone for people to follow. Leadership sets the tone, and I believe virtually all of us, in one way or another, lead. Whether it be in our homes, whether it be in our schools, whether it be in our, in our communities, whether it be wherever we volunteer, wherever it is, all of us, I believe, have people looking to us. All of us in some way have a leadership role. You know the expression tone at the top has become a a major theme in corporate governance and corporate situations for, for many years. And I was reading one business writer and he said this following, in essence it is the behavioral example that a leader sets for his or her employees to follow. It's not something that can be captured in a code of conduct that sits on a shelf or is pinned to an office bulletin board. It has to be lived by a leader on a daily basis And it has to be apparent to employees so it can cascade throughout the organization. Despite this, it's surprising how often leaders forget that their behavior is scrutinized every day and that every action they take is measured against the standards they communicate. Wherever we lead, wherever we go, people watch us, they scrutinize us, they they see that if our lives match up with the reality. But also, we have an incredible opportunity through those situations to set a tone that is different to the tone of the world. We have an opportunity to lead, to just to display the difference that Christ makes in our life. Thirdly, as we respond to God, he rushes in to, to meet us. And he says, I am with you always. You know, soon as they said yes to God, he jumps in and he says, I am with you. The minute they just verbalized it, he comes straight back. 
You know, it's the same for us. Whenever he draws near and we say yes to him, whether it be in an area of obedience or an area of faith or whether it just be just whatever it is, as soon as we say yes to him, he is right there beside us. You know, the story of the prodigal son illustrates this so well. The son is afar off and he says, I'll go home and at least I can be a servant. And we all know the story. The father is afar, still sees him coming when he's afar off. He runs, he scoops him up, puts a ring on his finger, clothes him with a garment, but shoes on his feet and gets the meal ready. I don't know why, but it's something about saying yes to God, even in the most difficult of circumstances, makes him want to rush and embrace us and take him up, take us up in his arms. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary. Whoa. I was going to say she's a lucky girl, but (laughs) nobody's going to believe a word I said. You know, and 34 years, you think, you know, how can I say this without being offensive? Um, I'm pretty slow as a husband. It's taken me 34 years to learn some things. Um, It took me about five years into our marriage to realize that when I asked my wife and she's, if I asked my wife and I asked her was everything okay, and she said yes, that she meant no. And see, even today I sometimes say, is that a yes, yes, or a no, no? Or is that yes, a no? Or does all guys suddenly understand me? And as I say, <laughs> and when we find ourselves in those situations where perhaps hope is struggling with something or just life itself is really difficult, I, I always ask her, is there anything I can do? Can I help you in any way? And as being a typical guy, I wanted to say, please, can you do this? Or can you do something? Does that make sense to you guys? It's just like, give me something to do to make it better and I will do it. I am not bright. I am your husband. You know this. Give me something very practical that can change the situation. Do you know what she will say to me nine times out of ten? She'll just say this, just hold me, just give me a hug. And it doesn't change the situation, it doesn't change the problem, but it changes her perspective on that situation. And I sometimes believe that some, as Christians we are so busy that we have lost the ability to allow him to embrace us and to put our arms around us and to make us feel incredibly special. Somebody's gonna come to me after the service and say, did you give your wife a hug this morning? And the answer is no, I forgot. (laughs) But there's another thing that I just wanna share out of that whole area about just allowing God to rush into us and not to be too busy. It comes from my own language, from Welsh. Um, Some of you may or may not know that Wales has its own language which is completely different to English. And everybody says, you've got no vowels in your language. It's a different language completely, but that's not the point. And it's something like, 
1,400, 1,500 years old. And it's so old that when the 20th century came and we had all these incredible developments, we didn't have the language for it. And it's quite funny, sometimes in modern Welsh, you have words that sound like English, but they're spelled differently so that we have them in our language. But there's a lot of things in Welsh that don't have a translation in English. One of them, which is very powerful, although this is literally translated, when we say, for example, the Lord's Prayer, our Father, which is in heaven, the Welsh there says, our dad. Our dad, which is in heaven. And there's another word that we, we use, and it doesn't have a literal translation into English. And it's the word, and you, I'll put it, we'll put it up. I won't ask you to pronounce it, but it's, the word is kutch. And it rhymes with butch. So you know how to pronounce this Welsh word. And it's got two meanings, and there is, stick with me on this one. It's got two meanings, and it's most basic, it is a hug. At its most basic, it is an embrace. And if you were to ask any Welsh person what a kutch was, they would instantly know what it was, but they would, they would know that it's more than just an embrace or a hug. It has two meanings, and they are intrinsically linked. As I said, firstly, it's a hug, it's an embrace, it's a cuddle. Yet, whilst being all these things, it's far more to someone who is Welsh. It invokes intimacy, earnestness, ownership, safety. It's safe, not threatening. It's non-sexual, but it's embracing and physical. Ask a Welsh person what kutch is, and often before they answer you, they will give you a fond smile because it is evocative. It has that unspeakable quality of transporting someone back to a, the safety of their childhood or to a good memory. Its second meaning is a safe place. We would translate it, we would call it a cubbyhole, somewhere to store things that are incredibly precious. Blend these two meanings and you'll get a better idea of what the word means. It's the wrapping of your arms around someone to make them feel safe in the world. If you give someone a kutch, you're figuratively giving them a safe place to be the person that they, they want to be. Friends, I believe that the parallel for us as Christians is so, so important. That God, in the busyness of our life, in the chaos of the situations that we find ourselves, in the sheer hardness of some of the stuff that we have to go through, and a lot of us have to go through incredibly difficult times, he wants to jump in, and he wants to help us, and he wants to embrace us, and he wants to hold us. As soon as the children of Israel who were returned said yes to God, he moves in. I think that's so, so important for us, that when we face life, when we face the challenges of being a Christian in the 21st century, when we face the challenges of being maybe the only Christian in our workplace or in our home or in our street or whatever it means, that when we say yes to him and we say, Lord, I want to do my best for you, he wants to embrace us and he wants to jump into our situation and he wants to rush us off our feet and he wants to be there for us. You know, perhaps some of us here today need to hear this. Before you need to hear another sermon or read another book or listen to another podcast, we need to feel his embrace. Need to feel the loving kutch of a heavenly father who embraces us and wants to put us in a safe place 
where he can comfort us, that he wants to embrace us tightly and fondly. Nearly finished. Musicians, please come and join me. You know, when God stirs us, we will desire nothing more than to do his will. It says here in verse 14, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. You know that when God stirs our hearts, when he calls us, when he embraces us, when he just again declares his incredible love for us, we just want to respond. Friends, God's love for us is so incredible that it demands from us a response. The return of the children of Israel, the returning children of Israel, I should say, had to decide whether they would accept his invitation to allow him to be their God and to do what he had asked them to do or to continue in what they were doing, which was absolutely nothing. You know, today we receive the very same invitation to partner with him. The most important thing that we will do is about his work and for his kingdom, whether it be in our, in our homes, in our workplace, or on our streets. His desire is for us to do the things that he has called us to do, but when we do, we have that full assurance that he's there with us and for us, ready to embrace us and to be our Heavenly Father. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.